You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson, and my good friend, Sarah Raven. Today, it's the time of year where we're starting to think about our summer combinations and how to get beautiful rockets of exploding colour right way through into the heart of summer. We're going to talk today about a bulb, which is really quite versatile and very, very exotic for the English garden. They sort of stay in fashion. You see them at the garden centre a lot, but you don't really see gardens packed full of them anymore like you used to do. And I remember seeing Sarah, I think it was on Gardener's World, when she was walking through her oast garden and there was a wonderful ribbon of a lily called Landini or Nerone. And Sarah, of course, had picked these most beautiful colours of lilies. They weren't the white lilies like you see in the supermarkets. And so I'm going to plant lilies this spring for my summer combinations. And I think you're planning on doing it too, aren't you, Sarah? I am. And I suppose the thing that's put me off in the last 10 years or so is the bleeding lily beetle, which we'll come back to, or maybe we should talk about it now, because I think it it is the thing that puts so many people off. So it arrived, it's this bright scarlet beetle, I'm sure, if you're a seasoned gardener, you will know it very well. Quite big, the size of my sort of little fingernail, a little bit narrower than that, but it's quite a big thing. Very, very showy. Actually, it's not as big as that. It's half the size of a fingernail. And I think the reason for that being so showy is it's it's giving off a message to birds that it's poisonous, that mm. it's toxic. So they're quite easy to spot and they are really a pain because what they then do is they reproduce voraciously (laughs) and then they lay their eggs in what looks like sort of poo and I think it is actually their excrement and it's it's tucked in little sort of black sort of pustules kind of thing well little sort of black squidgy horribleness normally on the base of the leaf or on the stem. Anyway, I'm doing everything I can to put you off growing yeah, lilies here on site. It conceals the maggot <laughs> underneath the leaf, doesn't it? That's it. That's yeah. It. But what we found last year is if both Josie and the other gardeners and I were really on it, and what we tended to do is kind of early in the morning, we would go out. I tended to go out early in the morning because I do anyway with a matchbox and I would flip them into the matchbox And then I'm afraid to say I would either chuck them on the fire, which I know that's going to agonise some of you, but I'm afraid if you're going to grow lilies, you do need to do that. Or I would just tread on them, to be honest, um, or sometimes squash them with my thumbnail against my first finger. Anyway, I don't know. It's a bit gloomy to have talked about the pest straight away, but I think it is the thing that's put people off. And um, we'll come on to the loveliness of them in a minute. But one of the things I'm going to do, as well as plant lots more lilies this year, because I just loved them last summer, is put them in the greenhouse. And if you've got a sunny porch or a conservatory or anywhere that you can actually protect against pests a little bit, you will, of course, not get the lily beetles. So you'll get the loveliness of the scent and the beauty and the glamour and the scale, which is what Arthur talked about. 
but you won't get the lily beetle coming in. And if you do, it'll be in much more controlled numbers. So I'm actually going to plant loads of lilies through our tomatoes because one of my favorite smells, I'm not sure I call it a perfume, in the whole world is when I pinch out my tomatoes, the growth shoots from the tomatoes in the axles, and mixing that with lily scent, I, I can think of almost nothing nicer. Anyway, so that's my idea for this summer is in the greenhouse. I'm going to have some in the ground between the tomatoes and some in pots. So which ones are you going to grow, do you think, Arthur? Well, there's always new ones on the block. I, I used to live quite close to Hart's Nursery, which are the show people that are often at Chelsea Flower Show mm. with that huge stand in the middle of the Grand Pavilion with tons of different lilies in all different colours. I tend to avoid the tree lilies. They seem to be a bit too mutant for me. But there's a new one I'm growing this year called Lady Alice, ah. which um, looks quite, it's quite subtle for me, but I like the shape. I, I prefer the ones that almost look like species starfish rather than full on big yes. orientals. I like them to look like stars rather than something that's a bit too cloudy. But I'm growing that one and a shorter one is one I've grown before called Tiger Babies. Ah, yes. Um, which I've actually Lovely. got in a trough and it's perennialised quite well. They're very good for pots lilies if you want permanent pots because they love very good drainage. That's the key with them. Yeah. But they do like feeding. So I mulch on top of them before they come up. I try to. Because the thing about a lily stem is it roots off the stem a bit like a tomato does. Yes. So you want to plant them. They like to be planted fairly deep, actually, because then they, they send out lots and lots of feeding roots. Yes. But back to varieties, Nerone and Landini are the darkest ones. And mm. there's one called Nightfly as well, which quite which is quite newly bred. That looks very nice. And there's one I grew once at the Emma Bridgewater factory called African Queen. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that stunning with sort of bronzy orange with, yeah. it, with a crimson um, mm. on the outside petal. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. And I know you love the um, the Lily Regal, don't you? Yeah, I absolutely love it. That's the one I'm going to go for. Because I remember we had a bit of excess in the shop at Perch Hill, I don't know, maybe about five, seven years ago. And I wasn't really quite sure what to do with them. And to be honest, it was right at the end of the season. They were looking pretty ropey. But I thought, well, we've got to plant them. So we planted them all round the Dutch yard and it's Lilium regali, which is the one with the crimson outside of the petal is, is um, crimson. There's Lilium regali album where it's um, the outside of the petal is white. And we put them in, in groups of five bulbs in, I don't know, maybe about six or seven places around the Dutch yard. And to be honest, that first year, because... They, they were really pretty manky bulbs by then because we planted them in May or even in June. They didn't do very much. And I thought, oh, that's so disappointing. And then the next year they did a little more. And then the year after they did a little more. And this uh, last summer, honestly, they were my height mm. um, and these huge clumps. And they gave me more pleasure in late May through June than anything in the garden. And because the Dutch yard is quite sheltered, the scent just pours out. And they're, I think, in fact, moth-pollinated, so they tend to smell most strongly at dawn and dusk. But I found that actually almost through the whole day, you, you walked into that whole area and you just got that incredible fragrance. So I, I think we should all move back to growing lilies a little bit more. But... Arthur and I would never use an insecticide, of course. Some people do, 
But not only are you going to wipe out your lily beetle, you're going to wipe out all the other fantastic invertebrates, insects. So there's absolutely no way we'd ever do that. So it's it's physical removal of the lily beetle. But as I say, we managed to really keep on top of that last year. And they're just so completely sumptuous. Uh, I also love more on varieties. I also love tiger babies. But there's another one that I'm really crazy about, which is very late in the season. And it actually flowers from July into August, even into September. And it's called Lilium speciosum rubrum. Mm. And it's again like that. I think that that shape's called Turk's cap, where the petals are reflexed right back onto the stem. So they're not sort of big open trumpets. They, they curl back onto the stem. And it's, it's a species, but it's got that characteristic. Not so powerfully scented, but it is unbelievably perennial. So I put seven bulbs in quite a large pot, I, I think 15 years ago now in one of our long toms. And it was sort of against the north face of the wall in the Oast Garden, because we'll come back to where they like growing, but actually lilies loved apple shade. And I, I just sort of forgot about it every year until up it came and flared and died down, up it came and flared. And um, I realized then it was still doing that after a decade or more. And so that's when, again, I just started taking them seriously. And we now have them planted all through our royal fern, Osmonda regalis, and things like the wonderful shade-loving uh, hellebore called Merlin on the north side of our house. And obviously the hellebores have gone over, but then up rocket these really incredible lilies that have naturalized. So I, I put in maybe 12 bulbs originally, and I would say there's more like 30 stems come up, flowering stems come up now. So I think people don't quite realize that, that when they see them in the garden center or whatever, they think of them almost like a dot temporary plant. And then perhaps, you know, as people do with their amaryllis in the winter, they maybe even chuck them. But actually, a lily is a totally, totally perennial bulb and will just get better and better, planted in the right position. They will they will then naturalize. And they give so, so much pleasure. So what would you be your advice about planting, Arthur? I know you said yeah. lots of drainage. I mean, they are, they're a bulb that tend to, the nice varieties do tend to sell out, just like the dahlias. So when I see them in the garden centre or I find them online, I do order them straight away. Yeah. I've made the mistake, though, of just chucking them in, you know, I have a big box with all my daily tubers and, and some of the bulbs in with the gladioli and things. I've made the mistake of putting them in there and then forgetting about them, finding them in May. And as you've said, they do start to feel mushy and like they're falling apart. They're made out yeah. of... The bulbs are a strange little creature. It's like little um, little scales, like a pangolin. Yes. Um, and you'll find if, you, if, if they get damp or if they're old, they literally fall apart. Still worth planting them, but they they probably won't flower because the the mother bulb has you know disintegrated into babies. Mm. So I would plant them as soon as they arrive, or once you get home. Personally, I tend to I always save the um, the nice square David Austin rose containers, and I would plant about four or five in one of those actually. Oh yes, um, mix lots of nice um, leaf mold or peat free compost with grit because they love free drainage. And once it's filled just about under halfway, I'd then put the lily bulbs in. Yeah. As long as they're not touching, they're fine. And as I said, that means that the stems, as they grow up, they'll they'll send out lots of feeding roots through that top half of the compost in the pot. 
To planting them several inches deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then they come up and because my garden's small, I tend to just have them in a corner and as Sarah said, they'll take dappled shade quite well. And then as they start to come into flower, I either dot them through a perennial border, still in the David Austin pots actually. Oh, because do you leave yeah, them in the pot? Yeah, because by the time herbaceous things are up, yeah. you can just hide that green pot. Yeah. Yeah. And the roots will go through the green pot into the into the border. I mean, if you're on heavy soil, lilies don't like heavy soil. So that's quite mm. a good way of, of, you know, scattering them through your garden. And then you just, you know, take the pot out of the bed at the end of the season. Or obviously, if you've got lots of pots, you can plant them directly into nice pots. Mm. Sometimes I will just plant them when I'm planting out my dahlias. If, you know, the bulbs are still healthy enough to just pop through the dahlia tubers in a in a pot and then they grow up through the foliage. But they do need to be staked, I find. Yeah, I, exactly. I was about to ask you what you do about that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more because they're, they're so heavy-headed, yeah. aren't they, that they the stem doesn't quite hold them. Mm. So a sort of robust, stout stake yeah. for the first third or so. Yeah, definitely a willow cane job. Yeah, yeah, or a, yeah. a nice no, bit of hazel. I couldn't agree more. They definitely need staking. And then, I mean, one of the other things that obviously lilies are really famous for are as cut flowers. Mm. And... I remember the then head gardener at Sissinghurst called Sarah Cook once teaching me this or explaining this to me, which is with most bulbs, if like, let's say a hyacinth, the foliage is all at the base. There's no foliage on the stem. So you can cut a hyacinth or a narcissus or whatever, right, right to the base because you're not compromising the photosynthesis because of the leaf surface area, and so then starch being stored back in the bulb. Whereas with a tulip, you want to leave, if you possibly can, at least one or two stem leaves, and so you only cut ideally just above that. I know florists tend to actually yank them out of the ground and treat them like annuals because that will kill the bulb, but I want to keep my tulip bars. But anyway, with lilies and fritillaries, which are the two real classics that have leaf up the stem, to about a third or even half the full height of the flowering stem. And you mustn't pick that right down to the ground. And I remember Sarah saying you always want to leave a third of the leaf section of the stem so that you've still got maybe 12 leaves on the stem that are going to photosynthesize because otherwise it won't perennialize, it won't come back. And it won't then naturalize and form bigger and bigger clumps. So if you want to pick them, my rule is one in five. So if I've got five, I might pick one and leave four. But I always leave that leaf section below where I cut. And I think that's really important because actually all you do when you got them in would be to strip that leaf because it would be below the water level in the vase anyway. So you might as well leave it on the bulb so it can photosynthesize, form more starch, form a bigger bulb for the following year. So it makes good sense to me. Mm. And are you going to put them in any of your pots? Yeah, I mean, um, I remember going to Chatsworth when I was little and they always used to bring in the pots. They'd grow them in pots and then just bring them in, in the house like a house plant. Yeah, lovely. And I think that looks so elegant. Yeah. You know, they Useful. in like nice, not massive long toms, but, you know, mid-sized ones. And that means you can bring them in for, you know, if you're in at home and all the weather's really awful, then you can just put them outside again. Yeah. And the yeah. scent just, you know, it's just perfume Incredible. factory. But be careful about your clothes. My aunt and uncle once had a real big argument because he had a white shirt on and Aunt Ros had got these massive lilies in the house 
full of the stamen pollen. I think oh, yeah. they were about to go out to a party or something. <gasps> and this white shirt was, of course, covered with all this orange, yes. looked like paprika. Yes. Um, and I don't think it's very easy to get out of no, clothing, it's is not it? At all. <laughs> or furnishings. I do actually always remove them once I bring them into yeah. the house. And it's a shame in a way because they are rather elegant and rather sort of Venetian and velvety. But I do think one of the things, if I have a vase of lilies in the house, every morning and every evening, I will go to it and remove the stamens before they ripen. So before the pollen actually starts to drop. Because what I've found in trialing at Perch Hill is that once the pollen drops on the stigma of one particular lily flower, it's of course fertilized, it's done its job. So the flower dies quite rapidly. And whereas if I keep basically kind of sterilizing or kind of castrating really the lily bar by removing the anthers, you may get a bee that comes into the house and will pollinate it, but that's less likely, much less likely. And so you actually prolong the vase life of your lily by removing the stamens each flower by a couple of days, I find. But the key thing is you must do it before the anthers ripen. So you, you need to do it. That's why I do it morning and night. So as well as topping up my vase with water, which I know you and I have banged on about before mm. on the podcast, but then that's really important because they use a lot of water. They photosynthesize a lot. But removing the stamens from the flowers that have opened in the last 12 hours, morning and night, is also really important. There was one other one that I or a couple actually, that I wanted to just mention, which is um, I remember when I was sort of more perhaps a florist than a gardener, the one that always used to be available as a cut flower was a variety called Casablanca. And it's a pure white oriental lily with the most incredible perfume. And the flowers are the size of, gosh, well, certainly bigger than a croquet ball, way bigger, but not as big as a football. So somewhere in between those two. And they are absolutely splendid and they do have a vase life of two weeks if you remove the stamens. Anyway, because of that, I, I really wanted to grow them. And so I planted them in the ground and they didn't do well. And actually, they have a pH sensitivity. Now, the awful thing is, I can't remember if it's acid or alkaline that they like, which is terrible. I so think they prefer acid. Acid. So I then grew them in pots from then on. And I think you're right, it's an ericaceous compost, yeah. but I apologise, everyone. You'll have to just check that. And I had the most spectacular, crazy wedding cake, wedding gown of a sort of puffball of lilies that just flowered and flowered and flowered and flowered. And um, I, to be honest, I haven't done that for about 10 years now. But when I was looking through our catalogue, I thought, gosh, that's what I'm going to do in the, in the greenhouse and for the steps as you go down into the Oast Garden, which is where I first had them. And they're tall. You know, they might get to four foot, five foot even with these huge heads. And then there's, if you want the same sort of loveliness, but a little bit smaller, there's another one called Muscadet, which has red sort of markings, almost like with a paintbrush over the white. And that's another beauty too. And I find those, you know, if I'm going to do three in pots, I would do the Lilium Regali, I would do Muscadet, and I would do Casablanca. And I'm certainly going to go back to lots and lots of those. And I'm really excited. And I would just, you know, it's so because June can be, you know, the roses are starting and the sweet peas are starting, but late May, early June can be quite a downtime in the garden. And with those lilies planted in the next month, March is the time to plant them. 
I'm going to be really eager for those months to roll around. Yeah, I am too. I'm going to do tiger babies in um, my pot. And if you're keen on like the prairie garden look, I do think they really look beautiful with all the perennial grasses. Yeah, yes. just popping up like, you know, jolly starfish. But I would say, as Sarah said, you know, do go for at least, if you can, a dozen of each variety. I think they look much happier as a, a grouping than as little exclamation marks. Yeah, and, and the species too. Yeah. Um, you know, the Turk's cap and Lilium henryi, which is an orange one, that's another beauty. And mm. that's perennialized in our rose garden at Perch Hill. Yeah, so a lily beetle apart, but there are ways to handle that. I think um, it's the year of the lily, 2022. Mm. We're both certainly going for them big time. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Next week, in fact, it's just me, and I'm going to interview Josie, our head gardener at Perch Hill, who has been with us for nine, nearly 10 years now. And her great passion in life, apart from containers, is actually roses. So as we're getting to the end of the potential time, but not quite there yet where you can plant bare root roses, I thought I'd pin her down and get her to describe her favourites and how to best look after them. So it's Josie on Roses. See you then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.